Good morning, everybody at The Journey. Good to see some of you. I can't see anybody here, but I'm trusting you're out there, kind of blinded by the light. Uh, yeah, as Mike said, my name is Sean Cronin, and I work at Passion for Planting and New Life Christian Church out in the Chantilly area, and actually part-time for the church and part-time as a fitness instructor and director of our CrossFit box out there, so get to help people physically and spiritually. And I'm excited to be here with you during this Christmas series. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about Christmas. Anybody here excited for Christmas, okay? I know for me, Christmas is the time of the year that I get to spend with my family, so I've always been a single guy. But every Christmas, I've gone home to be with my family up in, in Buffalo, New York. And so I went, I went to college a thousand miles from home. But every year, we'd go back to Buffalo, and so now whenever I hear, like, Christmas music, I'm just like Pavlov's dog. I'm just like, what? Snow? Buffalo? Family? What? Hmm? So I'm, I'm looking forward to spending Christmas with my family. And in this message series, we're reminding ourselves that Christmas isn't just about being with our family, but it's more importantly about God being with us. It's about how God has in invaded our world through his son Jesus as Emmanuel, this whole message series hinges on this one verse, Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in this set of messages, we're seeing how God is with us through all of life's ups and downs, through every season that we find ourselves in whether things are going the way we want them to or they're not, on the mountaintops and in the valleys and even in the desert seasons. And today we're going to talk about how God is with us in the desert or in the, the wilderness seasons of our lives. See, the Bible talks about the wilderness as being a place where it seems like, well, God is really far away. It's a place of isolation and desolation. It's a place where there's no provision so it's easy to be spiritually hungry and thirsty. It's the place of a desert is where there's not mile markers and there aren't, uh, there's no road map. And so it's easy to feel like you're lost. It's easy to feel like there's no purpose and you're just always going to be here stuck and you're all alone and nobody knows what it's like to be here. So maybe some of you, you feel that way in your marriage, right? Maybe, maybe it's kind of like, okay, you hit a desert season in your marriage where you had this great experience because in, well, actually in the Bible, oftentimes there's a mountaintop experience that's followed by a desert experience. There's something great, like you're married, you, you, you have your wedding and it's so great and you have all this passion, all these feelings, and then there's this desert season. You kind of feel stuck, kind of feel alone, like nobody really knows what you're going through. Maybe the desert season that you're experiencing is related to your career. Right? You were so excited when you got hired. You were so thankful. Thank you, God, for providing me with this job. Answer to prayer. And now it's just work, and it's kind of boring. And maybe, maybe they're asking you to do more than you would like to do or really more than really should be expected of you, and you're not getting the recognition. You're, not, you're being overlooked for the promotions, and it's discouraging. You just feel like you're alone, and nobody really sees what you're doing. Maybe, maybe you're in a a desert season when it comes to your health, right? And you're like, I've seen God heal me in the past, but I just, I just can't get over the sickness. I can't get over these injuries, these bad things that keep on happening to me health-wise. You just feel like you're in this, this desert season. 
You know, Jesus experienced the desert season after a mountaintop experience in his life. Right? He, he, he comes out of the scene and he's baptized and, Je- and God shows up in a powerful way as heaven's torn open. The, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and the voice of God says, this is my son. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. He has this incredible spiritual experience with his heavenly father. And then Mark chapter 1 says, immediately after the Spirit of God sends him into the wilderness, into the desert, where he has to remain for 40 days and, and 40 nights. We, we see this with King David in the Old Testament. When, when God is anointed as the next king of Israel as a young boy, and then he defeats the giant Goliath. He's the hero of Israel, and then he has to go run for his life for about 20 years and hide in the desert before he becomes king. We see with the Israelites and them being slaves for 400 years in Egypt. But then God showing up and delivering them, liberating them from their slavery sending the ten plagues, and then dividing the Red Sea so they can pass through on dry ground, and then showing up on Mount Sinai and giving them the ten commandments, and then they, they disbelieve. They don't trust God, and they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. It's this mountaintop experience followed by a season of dryness, of wilderness, of desert. Today we're going to ask the question, so how do we respond when we find ourselves in the desert? in the wilderness. How do we respond? We're going to look at a passage of the Old Testament, a story of a guy who found himself in a desert season, a prophet named Elijah. So if you would, open up your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll pick up with Elijah's story there. And in Elijah's story, we see how God will allow us to go through wilderness seasons because it's in those seasons that we learn to depend more on God and not on our stuff, not on our money, not on our health, not on our career, but on, on God. So 1 Kings chapter 19 starts off saying this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So what's going on here? The year is about 850 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel has split off from the southern kingdom of Israel. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't have any good kings. King Ahab was their king, and he was an evil king. And he led the children of Israel away from the one true God and led them to worship the gods of the nations around them. And his wife Jezebel was really the one that was really promoting that. And so she hired 850 prophets of Baal, this other false god, and this, this god of Asherah, 800 prophets of Asherah. And led the nation of Israel to worship these false gods. And so God says, hey, Elijah, I need you to go to Israel. I need you to tell these people that they're worshiping false gods. And they're going to continue to suffer consequences. They're going to continue to be far from me until they repent and worship me. And so that's Elijah's mission. He says, i got to turn the nation of Israel back to God. Call them to repentance. And so one day he says, who wants to have a barbecue? He says, who wants to have a barbecue? I don't think it's exactly like that, but that's what I like picturing in my mind because who doesn't like coming to a barbecue? So he puts out the word, we're going to have a contest. Okay, there's going to be fire. Okay, there's going to be meat. Okay, you got to come to the top of Mount Carmel and there's going to be a show. And so he gathers all the false prophets, 850 false prophets of Baal, 800 prophets of Asherah. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest. We're going to see which God can send fire down from heaven. So they, they each build altars, and they put meat on the altar. 
And Elijah says, you guys can go first. I'll let you have first crack at this. Here you go. Do your thing. And so the false prophets, they're crying out to their gods, oh, Baal, oh, Asherah. And nothing's happening. They're singing. They're dancing. And Elijah's like having, having some fun. He's laughing. He's like, this is ridiculous. Like, you guys are just talking to nobody. You guys are out. You guys are idiots. He's like, what are you guys doing? He starts talking smack. Elijah talk, starts talking smack because he is so confident that they're not going to answer with fire and that his God will, that he's like, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom, okay? Maybe, maybe he's far away, so you need to shout louder. You know, maybe, maybe, okay, he's on vacation. Like maybe, you're gonna, maybe we're going to have to try this later. But they, 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 start, they start cutting themselves. They're doing whatever they can do to get the attention of their God and nothing happens. But Elijah knows nothing's going to happen. But he knows that God's going to answer his prayer request. Why? Because he's seen God move. Elijah's seen God move in the past. Elijah's seen God shut the heavens so it didn't rain for three years. He says that wasn't a coincidence. Elijah's seen God provide for him when he was running from Ahab, was spending three years in the wilderness, and he was fed by a raven. It's like, that was not a coincidence. That was God. He has seen God raise a boy who was dead back to life. He's like, my God is the one true God. And so he is not afraid. He is confident. Eventually, the false prophets, they're just exhausted. They give up. And so Elijah says, okay, let's make them things interesting. Let's actually pour water on my altar so you know that this isn't a coincidence. Pour water, right? It's not going to be some like cigarette butt that someone like throws and it's going to start on fire. No, this is going to be God sending fire from heaven. So they douse the altar with water. And then Elijah prays, he prays, and God sends fire down from heaven and burns up the altar. And everybody, all the the crowd, they're amazed. They're like, this is amazing. And they start chanting, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yes, he is God. And, and, And Elijah gets caught up in the moment, and it's so awesome. He's like excited. It's like his football team has just won the Super Bowl, okay? I don't know if your team has ever won the Super Bowl, my team has never won the Super Bowl, okay? We've, Buffalo Bills have lost four straight Super Bowls. The only team that's ever lost four straight Super Bowls, okay? Avenge the 90s this year, okay? Avenge it for my dad, okay? You know, I was a kid when we lost four straight Super Bowls. But if the Bills win the Super Bowl this year, I'm not saying they are, but it would be nice, okay? But if the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl this year, there will not be a table within my site that's going to be safe, okay? I'm going to be jumping through tables, which some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you do, okay? I'm going to be so amped up. I'm probably going to be running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And Elijah gets caught up in this moment. He's like, this is amazing. This is awesome. This is awesome. Kill all the prophets, right? Kill all the false prophets. And that's what he does. He kills all of these false prophets, the one who Jezebel had employed, the one who Jezebel loved. And so Jezebel is not too happy about this. So the text continues. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. Like, Elijah, you're dead meat because of what you have done. And so Elijah is now afraid. Right? He's, 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 a, he's, he's been public enemy number one for years. Ahab wanted him dead. Ahab, but now Jezebel's angry. Now she's upset. So now he's afraid. Elijah is afraid. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, 
He left his servant there. Footnote, Beersheba, okay, that's about 100 miles from where Mount Carmel was. So he's just run about 100 miles to Beersheba, right? He's the first ultra-marathoner. I don't know if you have any friends that do ultra-marathons. I've got some friends like, yeah, we're going to go for 100. 100 meters? Like, what? No, 100 miles, like crazy, okay? But Elijah, on foot, goes 100 miles. It says, while he was himself, then, then he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a boom, a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. You know, Elijah's had enough. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you can relate to Elijah. Ever had those days where you're just like, I've had enough. I can't go on any further. I'm frustrated. I'm overwhelmed. I mean, maybe, maybe it was at work where you're like, just like, if they ask me to work overtime a weekend one more time, I'm done. I'm done. Or, or, or with your spouse, you're just like, why don't they get it? Like, I ask them to do this, and they say they're going to do it, but they don't do it. I'm frustrated. I've had enough. Or with your kids, right? With your kids, you're just like, they don't have any gratitude. They don't understand what I'm doing for them. If what, But one day, I've had enough. There's just some days where it's just that no good, very bad day where everything goes wrong. Right? Your car breaks down. Your kid gets an eraser stuck in their ear, and you're just like, what? What else could go wrong? And Elijah's at the end of his rope. Maybe you've been there. You've been at the end of your rope. So God shows up. God shows up, verse 5 says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Hey, get up. Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and lay, lay down again. So in this text, we see how God knows what Elijah's going through. He, he knows what he's going through. He knows that Elijah is exhausted, physically exhausted. Right? One of the reasons why sometimes we end up in deserts spiritually Sometimes one of the reasons why we end up in deserts emotionally and we struggle with anxiety and depression is because we're physically exhausted. It's because we're not getting the sleeps that our, our minds and our bodies need in order to repair and to heal themselves. I don't know if you know this, but you're, you need to get into stage four and five of sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, in order for your brains to produce the hormones, human growth hormones that your body needs to recover, to, to fix injuries. The chemicals that your brains need not to sink into depression or anxiety. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is to get good rest. And Elijah needed, he needed rest. And he, need, he needed food. He needed water. He's probably dehydrated. And so God gives him water. He gives him food. He gives him an opportunity to rest. But God knew that that wasn't just what he needed. He wasn't just physically depleted, but he was also spiritually depleted, and he needed an encounter with his almighty heavenly Father because he was spiritually malnourished. Verse 7 says this, So the angel of the Lord came back a second time, 
Love that. He came back a second time. He didn't give up on him. Came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And so if there, if there was any question of whether or not he was in the wilderness, now there's no question. He is in the wilderness. Here's a picture of where scholars think Mount Horeb is. It's in the Sinai Peninsula, present-day Saudi Arabia. It is in the middle of nowhere, right? He is lonely. He is by himself. But this is where God encounters him. This is where God shows up in a powerful way. Verse 9 continues saying this. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know if you've ever been to counseling before. I've been to counseling. And when I see counselors, I hate it when they ask you, like, how can I help you today? I don't know. You're the professional. Like, aren't you the one that's supposed to have all the answers? They're just like, hey, what's going on? Hey, 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 what do you want to talk about today? I'm like, I don't know. Why, why is life so difficult? Okay, why am I feeling this way? Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Help me. You give me the answers. Right? There are days it's like, I don't know. But God is the wonderful counselor. He is the wonderful counselor, and he knows that Elijah's feeling like nobody's hearing him. Like, like nobody knows what he's going through. So he says, hey, Elijah, how are you doing? How are you doing? Why don't you, why don't you vent for a little while? I'm here. I'm here to listen. And so Elijah's ready to vent. He's frustrated. He says, hey, I've been very zealous for you, the Lord God Almighty. But the Israelites, they have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. It says, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I just like, I'm all alone, God. I'm frustrated. I don't like being hated. I don't like being the one that everybody despises. It's like, I'm done. I'm done. So God sees Elijah, sees that he is emotionally drained, physically drained, and spiritually drained. And so he says, what you need is more than just a nap. What you need is more than just food. What you need is an encounter with me. So verse 11 says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. It's go out and stand in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. No, the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So how does God show up when Elijah desperately needs to experience his presence, when Elijah needs to know that he isn't abandoned, he's not all alone? How does God show up? I know for me, when I experience seasons of the wilderness, when I feel like God is far away, when, when the doubts begin to creep into my mind and say, Sean, does, does God really care about you? 
I mean, why would he even really care about the earth? I mean, you're, you're, this earth just is really itty-bitty speck of dirt called earth. And, you're, you know, there's, there's billions and billions of galaxies. Like, why would he even care about you, Sean? When there are days that doubts creep into my mind and start thinking, like, I don't even know if any of this is even true. I want God to show up and be like, I want him to perform a miracle. I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want him to answer prayer requests. Like, I want him to send, like, fireworks and be like, yeah, I'm here. Boom, 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 boom. What else do you need to see and hear, Sean? And yet, that's not how God responds to Elijah. That's not how God shows up in Elijah's life when he desperately needs to hear him. How does he show up? He whispers. He whispers. He says, Elijah, I'm here. He whispers. He doesn't shout. He doesn't shout because when do you shout? We, we shout when we're angry. We shout when we're upset. We're, we're, we, we shout when our kids are down the street and you got to get their attention. Hey, it's time for dinner. Come on home. You, you shout when you're far from somebody. Why does God whisper? God whispers. He whispers because he's, he's near. He's right by your side. Yes, he is right next to Elijah. He wants Elijah to know, I'm not far away. I've always been at your side. I'm at your side right now. I'm at your side in the midst of the divorce. I'm at, I'm at your side in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the sickness, in the midst of the, the, the unanswered prayer. I am right by your side. And so he whispers to remind us that he's near, that he's not far. Psalm 34, 8 says this, that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those crushed in spirit. Yes, God whispers because he's close. And we know that he's close because Matthew 1, says, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with. And another prophet in the Bible who desperately needed to know this, needed to understand this because of the days of the doubt that he would experience, was a prophet in the New Testament who's basically the New Testament version of Elijah. Jesus actually said this prophet came in the spirit and the prophet, or the spirit and the power of Elijah. His name was John the Baptist. He came and he was sent to Israel to call Israel back to repentance, to turn from their sin, to turn back. To God, just like Elijah had called Israel to. And John shows up and he ruffles the feathers of the queen and the king, points out their sin, which they don't like. He says, King Herod, you shouldn't be married to your brother's sister. And so they throw him in jail. They throw him in jail. And in jail, John begins to doubt. John begins to doubt whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. And so he gets his disciples and gathers them to him, and, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. They go to Jesus in Matthew eleven three, and they ask Jesus this. Hey, hey, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So John, in this prison, in the darkness, in the wilderness of this desert season in his life, begins to doubt. He begins to wonder, was it, just, was it just wishful thinking that Jesus was the Messiah? 
I mean, this was, this after all, was John who had seen God do miracles like Elijah. John had seen God do miracles. He had heard God say, hey, John, the one you baptize, the one you baptize and you see the Holy Spirit come down out of heaven and remain on him, he is the Messiah. And when John baptized Jesus, he saw the Holy Spirit come down and rest on him. And that day, John knew Jesus is the Messiah. He is God with us. But now he's in prison. Now the darkness has set in and he's beginning to doubt. And he's got to figure out, okay, so what's ultimate reality? What is true? What do I anchor my hope to? What I see here in the, in the dungeon or what I, is maybe what I see outside? That he didn't have perspective to see. So that's what Jesus gives him. Jesus offers him perspective. Verse 4 and 5 says, Jesus replied, hey, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So John, I understand that in your desert season, in the darkness, you can't see what I'm doing out here in the light. You can't see it. But just because you're experiencing darkness doesn't mean that God's not on the move. Doesn't mean that I'm not the Messiah. Just because I'm not checking the boxes and not answering your prayers like you always expect them to doesn't mean I'm not here. Doesn't mean I'm not the Messiah. Doesn't mean I won't ultimately liberate you and free you. So the question that we need to wrestle with today is, how are we going to respond to the dark seasons of our lives? You know, the, the wilderness seasons of our lives. Are we going to make decisions based upon the darkness or based upon the light. This is the, the one idea that I want you to take with you today. From the story of Elijah, from the story of John the Baptist, is this. Never doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light. Yes, never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. What have you seen in the light? Think about that. What have you seen in the light in your marriage? What have you seen in the light? Remember your marriage day. Remember your marriage vows. Remember how God has, has healed parts of your marriage before, how he's resolved conflict, how he's, how he's helped you to be more gracious. Hold on to that and trust that he can continue to do that for years ahead and maybe get some perspective like John needed. He needed somebody on the outside to give him perspective of what is ultimate reality. Maybe you need some counseling. Maybe you need someone else's perspective to help you see what you can't see right now because maybe you have some depression, maybe some anxiety. Never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. Maybe you're wrestling with some, maybe you're, this relationship with the church. Right? Maybe there was a, a season in your life where was, God made very clear, like, this is your church family. And you need to give and you need to serve. And you started doing it and it was great and it was exciting for a season. But now you're getting tired. Now you're wondering, is it even worth it anymore? And never, never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. Continue to be faithful. Continue to give. Continue to serve. Maybe God made it very clear to you. Like, God wants you to adopt. Maybe he's like, hey, I want you to adopt. There are kids that need to be adopted. There are kids that need to be fostered. And he's like, I want you to do that. I want you to serve these kids. And so you, you started the process, and you, you started all the paperwork, but now months have gone by, and it's just like more red tape and more bureaucracy, and you're ready to give up. 
Friends, never doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light. Keep pressing forward. Keep moving forward. God is with you. He's close. You know, maybe, maybe you're beginning to doubt like I do many days where you're just like, I don't know. Is God even real? There are days where I wonder, like, is this all make-believe? Is this this whole thing about God, about Jesus, just some story that we made up to give us some hope, to give us some purpose, to keep us moving forward, maybe to help us behave a little bit? Right? There are days that I begin to doubt, and so I have to remind myself, hey, Sean, never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. In 1961, our country found ourselves in this struggle for power with the Soviet Union. We really were in this, this Cold War struggle of, of who, which nation is going to be the most powerful nation in the world. I was not there. Some of you were there, okay? But I, I have read some history books, okay, which tell the story that we decided, basically we decided, okay, sports isn't going to do it, right? Even though, you know, hockey, basketball, Rocky Four, like there was competition in sports, but ultimately it would come down to who could put a man on the moon, right? It was the space race. The space race is going to decide which nation is the world's leading superpower. And well, the Soviet Union actually beat us into space, they beat us into space. They sent Yuri Gagarin, this cosmonaut, in outer space, and he orbited the Earth and then came back down. And when he came back down, the, the premier leader of the Soviet Union at the time was named Nikita Khrushchev. And, and he was so excited, so proud of the Soviets that he had this big pr press conference. And in this press conference, he says, you know, we sent Yuri into outer space, and, and Yuri looked for God, but he couldn't find him. See, Yuri was actually a religious person, and Khrushchev kind of held that against him because Khrushchev was an atheist. The whole communist regime system was built upon an atheistic worldview, and so the government's basically, God's going to provide for you. So he's trying to plant seeds of doubt into anybody who believes in God, saying, hey, we sent Yuri into outer space, and he looked for him, but he couldn't find him. You know, God doesn't exist. So at the time, C.S. Lewis was teaching literature at Oxford University. He was a great Christian thinker. Some of you have probably read some of his works, The Chronicles of Narnia, maybe Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters. And so a, a magazine actually asked C.S., hey, would you respond to Khrushchev's comments about looking for God and not finding him in space? What do you think about that? C.S., he wasn't phased by it. He, he wrote an article called The Seen Eye. And, and he says, well, looking for God in outer space? That's ridiculous. Looking for God in outer space is like studying Shakespeare's works, hoping to find Shakespeare as one of the characters in the story. Like, you're not going to find him as a character in the story, even though he's always present in his stories. He's there because he's a storyteller, because he's the author. And so he says, like, on a, on a human level, that makes sense if you're kind of trying to look for God if he's a human, right? Like if you, if someone, if you have a landlord, you know, lives upstairs and you got a tenant in the basement, if your tenant, I've got a tenant in our basement named Paul, if he ever wants to see if I'm home, he comes upstairs. Hey, is Sean here? No, he's not here. All right, I can play my music as loud as I want. Right? That makes sense on a human-to-human -human level. But C.S. Lewis, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. So he says, it's like, it doesn't make sense for Lady Macbeth to go up into the tower of her castle looking for Shakespeare. Oh, is Shakespeare up in the tower? 
Oh, he's not. I guess he doesn't exist. See, it says, it doesn't make sense for you to look for God in outer space. He says, the only, the only hope that Lady Macbeth has to having an experience, to having an encounter, to understanding that Shakespeare is true and is real, is if Shakespeare gives her clues about himself in the story. Kind of starts talking about himself. And C.S. then says, but God didn't just give us clues. He, he didn't just, you know, give us DNA and the design and creating everything out of nothing. He didn't just give us clues. He actually wrote himself into the story as the main character. When he sent his son Jesus into the world as Emmanuel, as God with us, as the main character who didn't just come to ask us how we're doing, but would come and would die for our sins. Would come to experience every hardship, every sickness, betrayal, loneliness, to know that we're not alone, that, that God is aware of what we're going through, and that he's, that he's close. He's close. He's, he's close to you. Today he's close to you, whatever you're going through. Lord, sickness, financial difficulties, Marriage struggles, he is close, he is right by your side. And James 4 says, hey, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Why does he whisper? I think he whispers because he wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to lean in and be close. The question I have for you today is, are you leaning in? Are you listening to his voice? Friends, never doubt in the dark what you have seen in the light. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father. God, I, I thank you, God, that you are a God who is close, that you are a God who is near. You're not preoccupied with some other far distant galaxy, but you love us and you sent your son Jesus to prove it and to die for us. And so we are thankful, God, for that. But God, I want to pray for us as we experience seasons of highs and lows, that through it all that we would lean in and that we would hear your voice. We would hear your small, gentle whisper reminding us that you are near. You're working to heal every broken heart. You're working to restore this world, and one day you will return and make all things new, and we look forward to that day. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.